Well, I'd like to start with something a little bit different. I've been talking about uh, being who God created you to be. And uh, I, was, I was praying and, and worshiping this week, and I was studying the Word, and, and the Lord it just dropped something in my spirit that I think about from time to time. And I don't want you to think I'm morbid, but as I get older, sometimes I think about, you know, leaving the earth. Um, every person that's ever been born has died, you know, and... And then Jesus says that we'll never die because we'll be resurrected. But we all face that, die when our, that day when our physical bodies will die. And um, I always think about, um, I guess because I do a lot of funerals, I think about what, what people will say, you know. What kind of legacy will I leave? Will you leave in the earth? And so I think uh, God dropped this in my heart. It was kind of a joke between me and the Lord because we talk about silly things like this. And he had me write my epitaph. The, you know, what I'm going to put on my uh, tombstone, so to speak. So here it is. You ready? Not that you care. I just want you to hear it. So <laughs> I have, I hopefully have a lot of years to tweak it. So if it's not great, you know, we'll see how it goes. Um, okay. Put it up, Trey. It's called my life is over, but I die without regret. I may not have been the most intelligent, the wealthiest, the most charming, and I didn't possess great wisdom or great power, but I died without regret because I died knowing who and what God created me to be. I really believe that one of the greatest things that we can find while we live on the earth is who we really are and who God created us to be. I believe that people are trapped in sin and sin cycles because they're trying desperately to be something they're not. I think if you could define sin other than the typical you know, God gave the laws and you broke the laws or you broke the rules and that's how you define sin. If you could define sin by missing the mark of who God created you to be, I think that would be a better description than the other one. Because I really think if we're living the life that God created us to live, we really are not attracted to things that would take us off that road. If you've lived as long as I have, you've been down some wrong roads and you realize there's not a lot of happiness down the wrong road. So I just, I just, my hope and my prayer for every one of us, everybody in this room and everybody that comes to this church, is that every year that we live, that we become more the person God created us to be. Every year that you're closer than you were the year before. That you're unapologetically living the life God created you to live. You know, you're not perfect. None of us are. And I think sometimes the devil gets on our shoulder and he starts beating us up because we don't act like so-and-so or we don't, or we're not as Christian as that person or we're not as good-looking as that person. And the truth is, God didn't create you to be anybody but you. And there's no reason to let the devil beat you up because of what you're not. And so I want to speak to you today that God created you and he made you in a wonderful form. And to learn to embrace who you are and who you're not is just a, a tremendous uh, goal in your life. It's not a religious goal. It's not anything. It's just a goal about trying to be who God made you to be. We've been talking about the book of Esther, uh, studying the story of Esther. Esther was a queen. Some of you may be very familiar with the story. Some of you may not. Um, we kind of, when we do these kind of studies, it's kind of hard because we pick up right in the middle of a story, right in the middle of a Bible chapter. And so I'll give you just a brief synopsis that, um, Esther was a little girl, a Jewish little girl, born back uh, 500 years before Christ. And she was just a, like a typical Jewish little girl, but she was born in a Persian empire, which was a, a, an empire that was several hundred miles from, uh, from Israel because Israel had been taken captivity. She was living in a land that wasn't her own. It would be like if, if America fell into some enemy hands and they took a bunch of us, and they exported us over to a foreign land. That's what had happened to Esther and her family. But what's funny is they, they had been there so long that Esther only knew the Persian Empire. She only knew that world. The only reason she knew she was Jewish is because her family continued to practice Judaism even in the foreign land. And so here was this young girl. She grew up. And she was growing up, and the king, he had, uh, through a circumstance, he had disposed the queen of the land in Persia, 
and he sent out a call to all the young virgins of the land, and they gathered all the young virgin girls up, brought them into Susa, which was the capital city. It was the, the winter capital of the Persian Empire. And the king, he through a, through a selection process that we won't go back over, he selected a girl out of that group to become the queen. Now, you may think, well, that's a fairy tale. And when you, you know, some people, I've read uh, commentaries that say they don't even believe that Esther's should belong in the Bible because it never mentions God and it never mentions prayer, and it's really a fairy tale. But I'll tell you this, there is more biblical parallel in this story to the rest of the Bible than just about anything you can read. This tells the story of God's heart towards us, his queen, his bride, and what he will do to bring us into his presence is absolutely extraordinary. And so we pick this story up about Esther. She was the little Jewish girl, and of course she was selected to be the queen. And that's where we left it off last time we talked about this. She had been through her beauty treatments. She had been through everything. She had taken the advice of those around her. And she had come into the presence of the king, and he was so taken by her, he put the crown on her head, and then everybody enjoyed a big banquet. Esther was made queen. It is a fairy tale. But you know what? The world is full of fairy tale stories. There's a, there's a young woman in our uh, uh, era named Carrie Underwood. She was born in Muskogee, Oklahoma. Muskogee. This is her. Everybody knows her. Does anybody in the room not know this girl? I don't even listen to country western. John doesn't. That's okay. Me and you, John. But <laughs> all I'm saying is she... It's pretty remarkable that this young woman that grew up in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and her, her mom and dad of really humble means that lived on a farm in the middle of rural Oklahoma, that now she's one of the most influential people in the entire world. Ten years later, what happened? Well, this little girl was selected in a process to bring all these people to Hollywood to go on a show called American Idol, and there was all these hundreds of, maybe thousands of contestants, and they whittled them down all the way through this process, and they brought them up to this place in 2005 where they had gone down to just a process of maybe 10 people were left, and then they began to compete, and they got down to the end, and there were two left, and Carrie Underwood was selected as the 2005 winner of American Idol. And that's the difference of that she looks Back when she was auditioning the first time, this little country girl from Oklahoma, there in her jeans, and she had actually given up on singing because she grew up, she was a great singer, as you might guess. She grew up in First Free Will Baptist Church in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and she used to sing in, at the Lions Club, and everybody had her sing around town because she was just a little, uh, you know, star in Muskogee. And so they talked her into trying out, but what had happened before that is when she was 14, a wealthy person in Muskogee thought she was so talented that he got her uh, an audience with Capitol Records in, in Nashville. At 14, she went to Nashville, and Capitol Records was about to give her a contract. But then something happened at Capitol Records, and there was an, a turnover of management, and they withdrew the contract. And so she went back home just crushed. She was like, I'm not going to do this anymore. God doesn't have this for me. I can sing, yeah, but I'm not going to be, I'm not going to hit it big. So she comes back. She applies herself to studies. She graduates second in her class in her high school. She goes to college. She graduates with honors from college. But in 2004, when she was about 21 years old, she heard about this chance to go and try out on American Idol. So she goes and she tries out and she wins. This girl who lived on a farm in Muskogee who had hardly anything suddenly now is the center of attention in all of country music. What did she do with that opportunity? Well, put up her deals. She's won seven Grammys, 17 Billboard Music Awards, 11 Academy Country Music Awards, eight American Music Awards, youngest inductee to the Grand Old Opry in 2008, She's earned over $100 million <laughs> since 2000, not even 10 years. The Time magazine's listed her as one of the most 100 influential people in the world. 
people hear the story of Esther and they say, ah, that's a fairy tale. That didn't happen. Well, let me tell you, it still happens. It still happens. You know why this happens? Do you know why these shows captivate us? Because this whole scenario is in our heart because God created us to be that way. We love a rags to riches story. So let me tell you this. If you know Jesus, you're a rags to riches story. He's selected you. He's chosen you. He's equipped you. What are you going to do with that opportunity is up to you. A lot of people win American Idol and don't do what she's done. A lot of people, you don't even know where they are today because they took the opportunity and they didn't move forward with it because they never believed in their heart. They never took that leap of faith to step into what God had created them to be. But she did. And Esther did. Esther, who was the rags to riches story back in the Bible, is the same rags to riches story that we see even unfolding today. So it says that it says that after she was that after she was made queen, that she continued to grow in, in how to become queen. So many times whenever we come to knowledge of who we are in Christ, we have to go through a season of learning who, who that is, learning who we're supposed to be. We're not to be impatient and think that we can get there overnight. When we're born again in God, we have to go through a time of, of educating. Esther had to learn how to be queen. You know, learning who you are isn't the end of the story. Learning how to be who you are is the goal of the story. Many of you have glimpses and, and ideas about how God's created you and about what he wants to do in your life. And it's up to you to take it in faith and believe it and move towards it. You know, she was um, Esther, when she was brought into the king, she continued to have those outside beauty treatments. But more importantly, Esther began to have inside treatments as well. You know, when we come to Christ, he forgives us of all of our sin. We're, we're pure and white as snow. He takes all of that off of us. But it's up to us to step into who we are in Christ and begin to build inner beauty in ourselves. We have to develop a relationship with God and learn how to study his word and how to grow in the church and how to become who we're supposed to be in the kingdom of God. Amen. Becoming who we are in Christ isn't just God, you know, waving a magic wand and saying, oh, you're this. It's you hearing this. God does that to you, and he gives you every opportunity to step into who you are, but you have to step into it. Right, yeah. Esther subjected herself. She did this. She went through all of this. You see, in Christianity, sometimes we get the idea that being chosen by God or being set apart by God or being blessed by God is the end of the story or it's the goal. That's not the goal. God chooses us and blesses us and cleans us up. And he does all that for a reason. You see, with Esther, she was chosen, set apart, and blessed, and cleaned up. And she had tremendous favor with the king for a reason. And the same is true with us. God saves us, and he sets us on course in a new direction in life. He begins to call us into who he really wanted us to be, but that's not the end of the road. He's not, just, he's not just setting us apart, sanctifying us and filling us and cleaning us up so that we can be good citizens. He's doing it for a reason. Your purpose in God has everything to do with the king. Your purpose is for the king. Her purpose was for the king. God gives us platforms so that we can put on display what he has done inside of each one of us. It's not the end of the story for you just to get saved, for you just to quit sinning, for you to suddenly come into an abundant life. That's not the end of the story. God is calling you to a place with him. The only access 
to the king is through intimacy. No woman got to stay in the presence of the king except he desired intimacy with her. No human gains access to the throne room but through intimacy with God. You don't earn your way into the relationship with God through what you learn or by being good. You, you gain access to God through intimacy. And you have a discovery of who you are by being in his presence. So Esther was brought into the castle. She was made queen. She was cleaned up. She, was, she was suddenly had all this honor. She suddenly had all this money. She suddenly had all this influence. And she was just a little farm girl. She was learning. She was having to learn how to talk around people that were dignitary. She was having to learn how to carry herself, how to dress herself. She was having to learn so much in this new world that she was thrust into. But I'll tell you this, there was thousands, even millions, that would have traded places with her in a minute. Because it was a high honor in position. And, and Esther's cho chosen position and everything she's put into mirrors what God wants to do with each and every one of us. He doesn't want us to be peasants. He doesn't want us to live, just exist in life. He wants us to be kings and queens in his kingdom. He wants us to be uh, dignitaries in his kingdom. It's all about that. It's all about you being called into a special place with God. So she was learning. But she still didn't know what her purpose was. You see, she wasn't just made queen for her own end. She wasn't just made queen so they could have a queen. There was a purpose in what she was doing. So it says that, that the king was attracted to Esther, and he brought her in. He put the crown on her head. And then it said that sometime later, her, her cousin Mordecai, who was also an attendant in the castle, he became privy to a plan that two of the, the king's guards were wanting to kill the, ki the, the king. And so Mordecai heard these guards, over talk, you know, overheard them talking, and, and the guards were speaking in their native dialect, and they didn't think Mordecai could understand them, but they were speaking, and Mordecai did understand them, and he brought this information to Esther, and Esther, in turn, took the information to the king, and it says that they did an investigation and that they found out the two officials were really trying to kill the king, so they were hanged on a gallows. So Esther was beginning, she said, wow, you know, her and Mordecai, who were just uh, two poor people that were just out in the, in the rural area, had been brought into a place of prominence now into the court. Now they were suddenly serving a purpose that was bigger than themselves. They had actually saved the king's life. So Esther, you know, it would be like a lot of us. We would get a glimpse maybe of, of what God would be having to do with us. We know, we've been brought into the court for a reason. Esther finally thought, you know, I'm not just a pretty face. I really do serve a purpose in the kingdom. My words to the king preserved his life. She suddenly had a great deal of feeling special. She had finally found some real sense of worth. But was that the only purpose that she was brought into the, to the castle? Was Queen, Queen Esther, was this the end of the story? Did she get brought into the castle and go through all of this so she could be in this strategic place, so she could save the king's life? And I'll say, no, that's not the end of the story. This little tidbit of information in here about them saving the king's life is just a tidbit of information that lets us know that many times as we begin to walk out our Christian life, we're going to get a taste or a glimpse of what it, what it means to walk in power in the kingdom of God. You're going to get a taste and a glimpse to walk out in something that God created you to do. But it's not the end of the story. It's just a taste or a glimpse. Just like Esther got right here. She was like, wow, this feels really good. You know, I'm sure she got really tired of being fond over. I'm sure she got really tired of her hair being just having to be perfect every day. And I'm sure she got really tired of everybody just wanting to be around her because she was so beautiful. She wanted people to know she had a purpose and was significant. 
And I would say that with every one of us. Life without significance is meaningless. It doesn't matter how much money you have or how beautiful you are. If you don't feel significant in life, you really feel insignificant. <laughs> so when she got a taste of this, it was like a person that's in the kingdom of God and they, they figure out God's really using me. They really give a word to someone that's prophetic and it really does help someone get free or they pray with someone and someone becomes a Christian and they think, wow, God's really using me. Or they pray for somebody and they get healed and their body is totally well and they go, wow, God, you're really using me. Can I tell you that that little glimpse is not the end of your story? So many Christians like will settle for just the little glimpse of what they're created for and never step into what they're made to be. So many stop short. So many people let tomorrow's destiny get robbed from them because they're living in yesterday's taste of glory. You had an event with God. You had a, a tremendous power encounter with God. You had, a, you had something happen in your life 10 years ago. And it's like that your life's purpose did not stop with your tremendous event that happened 10 years ago. Life is progressive. Every year we should have a new testimony of breakthrough with God. Every year. We never do arrive. We should continue to push on and not allow ourselves to be robbed. Because this isn't the end of this story. We're going to go to chapter 3 of Esther. And I hope you brought your Bibles. Chapter 3 of Esther. It said, after these events... King Xerxes honored Haman, then Agite, and elevated him, giving him a seat of honor higher than that of any other nobles. Now, this guy is a new character, we think, um, this Haman guy. And, and I'll tell you this, if you want to write this in the margin of your Bible, the Haman character is a, is a personification of the devil. So Haman has been elevated to a place of prominence. Now, listen to this, a seat higher in honor than all other nobles. Now, do we know that, the, that God Almighty created Lucifer, one of the mightiest angels in all of his court? Do we know that he created him and gave him a place of high honor in the kingdom? Why? Well, I don't know. That's a question we got to ask God when we get there. I don't know, but this story tells that story in a parable. Parable. It says that he elevated him into this place of high honor. And all the royal officials knelt down at the gate and paid honor to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down nor pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about, about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated for he told him he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. And having learned that Mordecai's people were who they were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people and the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Now, there's a lot of directions that we could go out of this, but I'm going to go down the road that I've already started down. And that is finding purpose in the Lord. We have an enemy. And he's real. And I don't know why God's given the devil so much authority and power in the earth. I know that Christ's crucifixion and resurrection disarmed the power of the enemy. But the only way that he is disarmed in your life is when you stop agreeing with him and giving him power. You see, there's a clear picture here. There's, there's Haman walking through. And yeah, he's got... He's got a place, and I don't know why he has that place, but he has this place where he can, he can exert a tremendous authority to those that bow down to him. They actually are agreeing with him, and so that authority and that power can be displayed in their life. Many of you have bowed down to him and have given him authority in your life, and the reason you don't know who you are is because you've allowed him to take over your life. The devil has no authority unless we give it to him. 
And when we give it to him, he certainly takes it. It's all through the power of agreement. You see, this story, if you study history, it really doesn't... The Jewish culture does not forbid Jews from kneeling before a dignitary. The Torah does not tell you, you can kneel before a dignitary. It was not in a violation to Jewish Torah teaching to bow down before the king or through his dignitaries. So Mordecai was doing something not because the Torah forbid it. He was doing something because it's unparalleled to something we're supposed to glean from this. Just because something has power and authority does not mean it deserves to be worshipped. You know, you know we're, we're not being asked by anybody to kneel down before a, a foreign dignitary. We're not asked by the devil to kneel down before me. But there's so many people that will kneel down before the almighty dollar. You know, God says if you serve mammon, you can't serve him. Why? Because you can't kneel down to money and God at the same time. There are so many things in our life that we've given our heart to and we allow our identity be, to be stolen because we're worshiping the wrong king. And the only identity that can emerge from us is found in intimacy with Jesus. When we begin to make connections with things that are not of God, we've allowed our heart to be stolen away and our identity goes with it. Being lost does not mean just mean. Being lost does not just mean your, your name's not written in the Lamb's book of life. Being lost means you don't know who you are. It says in the Bible that people that don't know who they are, they're just tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. They just, oh, that sounds good. I'll follow that. Oh, that sounds good. I'll follow that. Oh, that sounds good. I'll follow that. You see, because there's no identity. There's no true fiber of conviction. There's no Mordecai standing up and saying, I will not bow because that's not my God. We've got to stop. To, to find your identity, to die with knowing who you are, you've got to stop bowing down to things that aren't God. Christians for too long. You talk about compromise, we're compromised. We have an enemy. And he thinks he's king. <laughs> but he's not. So what happens? Haman's got this deal. He, he hates Mordecai. And I'll just say this. The devil hates God's people. I don't care if it's the Jews or the Christians. God hates people. I mean, the devil hates people that serve God. <laughs> Let me say it right. The devil hates people that serve God. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, you want to make sure you get that one right. So here's Esther. She's in the castle. She's the queen. She's a Jew. She hadn't let anybody know she's a Jew. Here's her cousin Mordecai. He's a Jew. He's not bowing down to Haman, and Haman's the next in command under the king. And so it, it, there's, there's starting to be a problem set itself up here. The devil always has a scheme. It says in the Bible that he goes around us like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. There's always a scheme that God, that, that, that the devil is trying to manipulate and, and cause to come into our life to cause us. He doesn't have to defeat you in 10 minutes. He sometimes takes 10 years. But he will observe and he will circle us and he will go around us seeking whom he may devour. Because there's always a plot that the enemy has against the children of God. I, you know, people come to me sometimes, they say, I have a word for you, or I had a dream about you, and it was negative, and, and I just want to share this with you. And I'm like, okay, well, share it. You know, I love to hear words. And Well, I feel like the devil's out to get you. And I think, well, that's no revelation. I mean, that, that's not a revelation. Of course he is. He wants to humiliate me. He's done it before, and he wants to do it again. And I can feel him circling me. I can feel him tempting me. I can feel that he's trying to do schemes. There's many times that I wake up and go, oh, 
I sense a trap here. I really do see something coming. And instead of being naive and walking right into it and seeing if I can endure it, I walk around it or I get away from it. So many people find themselves in predicaments because they know there's an enemy and they know there's a scheme and they try to walk right through it. And guess what? You're not going to get through it. You're going to get caught in it. I, I think that many people lose their identity and lose sometimes years of their life because they're purposely naive. Naive on purpose. If you have a drug problem, you don't need to go witness in a drug house. If you have an alcohol problem, you're not being called to go into bars. If, you're, if you've got a problem with, with, with falling into uh, uh, compromised situations with those of the opposite sex, you're not called to minister to people of the opposite sex. Don't be purposely naive. The devil will steal your life and steal your identity. If the devil can keep you from being who God created you to be, he will keep you powerless because you will never be powerful living someone else's life. So here's the plot. He's got this whole thing going against the Jews. Haman goes to the king and says, Haman, there's this guy, and he doesn't kneel down before me, and he represents all these Jews. And these Jews, they live throughout your kingdom, and they do not go by our laws of the Medes and Persians, and they need to be exterminated. And the king goes, okay, exterminate them. And you go, well, that's crazy. No, it's not crazy. That's how these guys ruled. He ruled 127 provinces from India to Africa. And the way that they ruled them was if you didn't agree with him, they killed you. <laughs> and if you study history and you study this particular event in history, he had just put down an uprising in Egypt by doing that very thing. He rounded up every single person and their families that didn't agree with his kingdom rule, and he eliminated them. So for Haman to come and say there's these people and they do all this stuff, and they're not abiding by our laws, it's not unusual for the king to say, well, just exterminate them. You know, like Hitler did. It's the final solution. The devil's never changed his plan. He's always wanted to kill the Jews. And many times he's tried to kill them. And guess what? He wants to get rid of us as well. So the king granted his request. And Mordecai heard about this request. You start to see a similar theme. Mordecai had heard the threat on the king. Mordecai is the first to hear about this request. He, he even reads the edict. Mordecai gets a copy of the edict that had been put out in all 127 provinces, written in their own language so they could understand it. And it said that the king has put out a decree that all the Jews would be killed on such and such date. Mordecai was grief-stricken. You might guess. He was like, oh, my goodness, tears his clothes, goes into mourning. And then he sends word to Esther. So we know now, by this time, that Esther has not had, she, she's totally now uh, sequestered, or she's totally put into isolation as a queen, and she's not allowed to have just anybody come and go. Mordecai can't even come into her presence, so he has to send a messenger to take her the story and say, well, we'll just pick up the story in chapter 4, verse 7. Mordecai called this uh, attendant that attended to Esther and said it told him everything that had happened, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He gave a copy of, of the text, the edict for the annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain to her. And he told her to urge her to go to the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. And this, this eunuch, he went back and he reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. And she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and people of the royal provinces know that if any man or woman approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, put him to death. The only exception to this is if the king extends the golden scepter to him and spares his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. 
Now, when Esther's words were reported back to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think, Esther, that because you are in the king's house, you alone and all of Jews will, that you alone, that you are in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent reply back to Mordecai, go gather together, and this is about as, this is about the only place that you get close to hearing about prayer or God. But Esther says, go reply to Mordecai, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, fast for me, do not eat or drink for three days and nights. I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So here was the dilemma. This great king had a law. It could not be broken or altered. No one could approach his court. If you came in and you were uninvited, your head was cut off. They didn't ask any questions. It didn't matter who you were. And Esther knew this, and she hadn't been called to the king for 30 days. But here was a young woman that knew she had been taken from rags to riches. She had been placed in a position of honor. She had been cleaned up, filled up, equipped, educated, and ready to go. And it wasn't just for her glory. I hope you can make the connection to what I just described. She had to come to a place where she realized that God had taken her from a life that was not so great and put her in a great life and that now God was requiring something of her that could cost her that life. We're all this story. We've all been saved, filled, delivered, set upright, blessed, put in a place where God has given us a life that is great and for us to find out our true identity, we'll never find it out until we take a leap of faith. Our identity, our purpose, can never be found sitting and waiting for it to come to us. I love this in here. It said, he, he said, Esther, you're in this place for such a time as this. Don't think that because you're so special, you're not going to suffer in this. And then he went on to say, and if you don't fulfill this, salvation will come by another means. Let me say this to all of you guys. Your purpose in life is not life or death. Your purpose in life is not the only way. It's like me. When God called me to be the pastor of this church, he had saved me sanctified me, equipped me. I taught the Word of God. I had little glimpses of what I was made to do. I, I taught the Bible for 20 years. I had people I'd prayed with to get healed and prayed with to be saved. And I had lots of victories in my life. But they were only tastes and glimpses. It wasn't what God wanted me to do. It was just a glimpse and a taste. I could have stopped. I could have said, no, God, I have a good job. I have a family. I have a home. I have a, I have a 401k. I have insurance. I have all these things. You know, and, and you've given me those, God. You've blessed me. You've given me all these things in my hand. Because when you found me at 21, I was a nobody. I was a nobody. And you've made me into something that's great. And I love you for that, God. And then God said, I want you to pastor this church. There was a, there was a time I was just like, Wendy and I were like, oh, no, we we would have to make a lot less money and we would give up all our benefits and we would, it would be very difficult and, and, and the Lord would be saying to me, Daryl, this is an opportunity. This is, not, this is not something that's meant to hurt you. This is an opportunity for you to find out who you truly are. And I had to make a decision. Just like Esther. You see, Esther, if you don't do this, it's going to get done. Daryl, if you don't start this church, I'm still going to start it. You have an opportunity to do this because I want you to know who you are. And it, it's an opportunity. 
Many of you have had God challenge you with faith walks, faith steps, and you've said no time and time and time again because you see it as so much challenge when the truth is it's an opportunity. All you can see is the loss or the potential loss. Like the rich young ruler, he just couldn't do it. He didn't see that it would be of any significance. And Jesus said, just like Esther, I've given you that money. I've given you your place. You're young and you're rich, all because of my hand. Now I'm asking you to give it all away. Follow me so I can show you really who you are. But he wouldn't do it. He says he went away sad. He wouldn't do it. Without a leap of faith, we never find out who we are. Trey, play that little video. Okay, stop it. Stop. Stop. Can you stop it? Stop. Okay, don't stop it. Go. Why would anybody do that? I don't know. <laughs> That's Trey and Catherine on their honeymoon in Switzerland. And I can tell you why Trey did it. It was him filming this. It's because Catherine made him do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it does, you see that. I think, I, I, don't, I don't think I would do that. You know, just jump off a mountain in a little bitty skinny parachute and start flying across this big gorge. I... I wanted him to show this because that's your first question, or it is mine. Like, why would you do that? Why would you leave the ground? To... Let, let me tell you, because it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to experience something you can't experience by standing on the ground. Ground's pretty cool. Ground's pretty cool. But we have to admit it's limited. It's a comfort zone. We all have comfort zones. You know what that is. I feel comfortable here. Leave me alone. <laughs> Leave me alone. Don't challenge me to get out of my comfort zone. Okay. Here's, here's some truth. I'm convinced no one finds their true purpose in life in their comfort zone. Amen. I just don't think they do. That's why God gives us challenges of baptism, water baptism. That's your first comfort zone break. That's how he breaks your first comfort zone. Getting in front of everybody, having your name introduced, put you down in water, you get up, you're wet, look like a wet dog, you don't look like you know your perfect self. And so it's your first opportunity to step into something out of your comfort zone and step into faith. Next thing, you know, when he challenges you to tithe or to give to the church, he's drawing you out of your comfort zone, and he's saying to you, I'm not doing this to hurt you. I'm giving you an opportunity and a challenge so that whenever you give, you can find out what it's really like to be blessed. Right. You see, you can't find your true meaning of life in a comfort zone. You have to step out in faith. You have to step off the mountain of the comfort zone and into the unknown. I mean, becoming a Christian is so much more than being saved and healed and delivered. Some of you are constantly, it's almost like Christianity and church to you has become this perpetual healing, this perpetual deliverance. And you've almost made church and your walk with Christ into something that's self-focused. It's almost this endless desire to deal with the inner demons of your own life and you never seem to get there let me tell you why you're not getting there it's because it's not found in your comfort zone you're going to have to step out and dare to be what God's calling you to do 
but I'm used to this. Well, sure you are. That's called a comfort zone. It's why people stay alcoholics all their life, and they don't even want to do it, but it's where they feel comfortable. It's a familiar spirit. That's why people stay in relationships that are toxic. That's why people do things that are damaging. They've allowed the comfort zone to define their identity, and they don't even know who they are anymore. You don't find it in the comfort zone. You've got to step out in faith and do what God's calling you to do. There's no other way. It's faith to faith, but it's also glory to glory. Yes. Jump off into what God's calling you to do. This is an African Impala. This thing. So why am I showing this? This animal can jump 10 feet high and 30 feet in the air with one leap. 10 feet and 30 feet. That's huge. With just one leap. Yet they can put it in a zoo and put a three-foot fence around it, and he'll never leave. Do you know why? He will not jump over something that he doesn't know what's on the other side. They can control him that way, just like the devil controls us. He puts a little bitty wall up around us, and we're so afraid to jump over that wall into the unknown, we'll live our whole life in absolute prison because we won't step over it when we have every ability like Esther to do it, and not only to survive, but to thrive, to come into what God's really created us to be. Jesus said it like this. You did not choose me, I chose you. You see, it's the story of Esther all over again. Esther didn't choose the king. The king chose her because it was a picture of what Jesus does with you and me. He looks all over the world and he sees you and he starts drawing your heart. You feel it right here. God's calling me. Something going on with me. I need to get, I need to get right with God. That's God calling you. God's challenging me. He's calling you. He's he's. He's giving you a, a call to come with him. He chose you and appointed you. That means he selected, hand selected you for something so that you might go and bear fruit. You see, the job of every one of us is to bear fruit. Intimacy without fruit is fruitless. <laughs> if you're having a ton of intimacy with God and it's not producing fruit, you're not you're not doing what God intended for you to do. It's a progression. Intimacy with the king is meant to bear fruit. And it's only, the only way fruit is born. And not only that, it's fruit that will last. You know what this means? The fruit that God wants to produce through our life has eternal footprint. Eternal we spend so much time letting the temporal divert us from the eternal. There's a story in the Bible about Esau trading his birthright for a pot of stew. Why did he do that? His birthright was eternal. It, it, it was a destiny, and he traded it for something temporal because he was hungry. He lost his identity because he was focused on the temporal. The fruit that God's called us to last, have is lasting fruit, eternal fruit. We have an eternal footprint in the earth. The love that goes through us has a footprint that lasts forever. The, the peace and the joy that we leave in the earth, it lasts forever. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Man, this sounds exactly like Esther. She comes into the presence of the king and whatever you ask the king in my name, he's going to give you. He's going to hold the scepter out. He's going to give you whatever you ask because he wants you to produce fruit that's eternal. Some of you have this wrong idea about God. You have this idea about God that if you, like Catherine said, if you listen to him speak over you, he's going to say something mean or ugly. He's going to kick you in the rear or something like that. Some of you have this idea that if you really let go and let God, that God's going to somehow punish you for all the bad things you've done. Let me tell you, Jesus took all your punishment on the cross. He's not waiting to give it to you. He's waiting to give you the good things because Jesus took the bad. The devil's done a number on your mind. And so what he's wanting to say to you today is, Jesus has already taken every bad thing you've ever done. God's not waiting to hit you over the head with that. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. It doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter. 
Jesus took it. And now he wants you to believe and wants you to step into faith into what he has for you, which is a, an, an identity that's uniquely yours. It's, it's a life that's yours. It's going to seem scary and, you know, you don't know, but I'm telling you, it's worth it. It's something that's uniquely made for you. But if you allow your lack of self-confidence to steal that from you, or you allow your, your, allow your, the, your love of money to steal that from you, or you allow whatever it is to steal your own life, you will never find it because you've never put yourself in a position where you can step into faith and go with God. He created us, and then he saved us, and he cleaned us up, and he filled us, and he anointed us for such a time as this. We live in this time, which is a pretty crazy time, because God said, these are the ones that need to be around <laughs> when all this starts coming down. And there's a lot coming down, y'all. And I'm not trying to use fear at all. I'm just trying to tell you that we live in an unprecedented time. But we are the ones that have been set aside for such a time as this. And so I just, I just want to encourage you to believe. Encourage you that God is for you and God wants to give you a destiny and a hope. And he wants to give you uh, a very unique identity. And he's calling you into something that's uniquely made for you. So let's minister. And minister team, come on up. Um, I want to minister in a few things.